Let's pray, and let's start uh, with our sermon and our reading of God's word for the day. Let's pray. Father, as we enter into the most important part, arguably, of your worship service, where we study and open up the truth and the word that you have for us, I pray that you would help us really understand it, that if it disrupts us, you would um, use that disruption in a healthy way, if it comforts us, uh, that we would be comforted then in Christ. And as we uh, learn about what it is you have to say to us, uh, about the holy use of your name, uh, help us, Father, be led to the redemptive story in which this Holy One died. His name profaned by sinners, but yet he used that cross to save those very same sinners that profaned it. Thank you, Father. Help us fall in deeper love with Christ and show us the cross before we leave this room today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so friends, we are continuing in our sermon series through the book of Acts. Today, we're currently on chapter 19, where we continue to see how the early church grew from humble, small beginnings to a bigger movement. And most of the time in the book of Acts, when we see the church grow and the good news about Jesus spread, it happens in a very normal way, right? Most of the time. Uh, meaning someone preaches the gospel to someone else and the other person receives it and that's how the church grows, right? Like 90% of the time, that's, that's what happens. But in our passage today, we'll see the gospel spread in a way that's not normal. Even the first verse of our story, verse 11, it starts off saying this, God was doing extraordinary miracles in the Greek, that literally translates to God was doing things that's not of the casual kind. <laughs> so the author is trying to tell us here that, look, the way the gospel is going to spread in this story that we're about to read, it's not the normal way that it spreads, okay? How will the gospel spread in this story today? Through the public shaming of false miracle workers. I didn't write it, okay? I'm just preaching it. Here we'll see a group of false miracle workers try to perform an exorcism, and they'll try to use Jesus' name to do it, but instead they got beat up and stripped naked by the possessed man. And after everyone saw what happened, verse 17 says, a lot of people ended up receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. What a weird passage, I know. Try turning into a sermon. <laughs> And as bizarre as the story sounds, there's actually a lot to learn from it. One, it'll help us, I think, answer the question that I know a lot of Christians who grew up in our culture today have asked themselves many times. The question of how we can make sense of the many churches and Christian leaders out there who proclaim to have powers to perform miracles and exorcisms that the people in Acts chapter 19 also claim to have how do you make sense of that? Is it real? Is it not? What does the Bible say about it? How do you make sense of all that? And second, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you didn't grow up in the church, right? And you're just here today to learn more about what Christianity is all about. I'm sure if you grew up here at least that you've also seen or at least heard about these kinds of things happening 
probably seen clips on TV or social media of people doing these kinds of things. And you're thinking to yourself, man, what an odd religion. Is this what Christianity is all about? Well, if that's you, I hope this passage can help you conclude for yourself what Christianity is actually all about. All right, let's get into it. This is the word of God taken from Acts chapter 19, verse 11 to 20. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to, to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Thus says the Lord. There's three things I want to point out from this passage. First, don't treat answered prayers and apostolic miracles the same. Two, don't treat all false miracle workers the same. Three, don't forget that the root of our sins are all the same. Okay, let's start with our first point. Don't treat answered prayers and apostolic miracles the same. So our story starts out by showing us how God gave Paul here, an apostle, the ability to perform a miracle, right? Verse 12. The handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched Paul's skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So God used Paul, or rather the pieces of cloth that touched his skin, to be an agent of healing and renewal wherever it went, wherever Paul went. Now let, let's, let's talk about these kind of miracles here first before we move on, or else we, this passage won't make sense to us. Why did God allow miracles like this to happen in the New Testament? It wasn't to put on a show. It wasn't to impress a crowd. God was very specific about the kinds of miracles he did and who he gave the ability to do them. To confirm this, I did a little research. I went back and I studied all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, and also the whole book of Acts that we're studying now, and I looked it up just for you. And it turns out that not every Christian in the New Testament were running around performing miracles. You know who did miracles in the New Testament? They were done almost exclusively by Jesus and by his apostles. That's it. In the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only Jesus performed these kinds of miracles of healing and stuff like that. In the book of Acts, these kinds of miracles of healing happened 18 times. And 17 of those instances were done by an apostle. 
Seven times it was done by Peter, an apostle. Nine times it was done by Paul, an apostle. One time it was done by Philip, an apostle. That's 17. And only one time was it done by a non-apostle, Stephen, in Acts chapter 6, who, by the way, was a church leader appointed personally by all of the apostles. But aside from that, no one else did miracles like this in the New Testament. The New Testament isn't filled with Christians randomly running around performing miracles. God was very specific about who he let perform miracles. Aside from Stephen, it was only Jesus and his apostles that are healing in, in nature and stuff like that. And this exclusive ability to perform miracles by the apostles is confirmed also by Acts chapter 5, verse 12. I'm not just making this up by my own random research. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. It should be behind me. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Not by every Christian. God was pretty exclusive about who he gave these abilities to. And you know why he was so exclusive? Because God wanted to confirm to the world that the message that the apostles were bringing about salvation through Christ alone, that that really was from God. They weren't making this up on their own. Jesus is God who has come and died to make all things new, they claimed. What? That's crazy. God, is this true? Yes, it is. Here's the proof. Bam. Miracles. Through these people, I will literally, physically make all things new. The lame walk, the blind see, and like in our passage today, the sick are healed. But Tez, aren't you preaching the word from God right now? Aren't you doing that too? Yes, I am. So then shouldn't you have the ability to do these miracles too? No, I don't. Why not? Because all I'm doing is telling you what God already told the apostles first. You see, they were the, the first touch points for God's revelation in the New Testament. God had to stamp them. I'm just telling you what the first point of contact people said. I'm not bringing any new revelation. By the way, think about this. Who did God give the ability to perform miracles in the Old Testament? Who are they? The prophets, right? Who were God's first point of contact of bringing revelation to the people in the Old Testament? The prophets. All I'm doing every Sunday to you is telling you what the prophets, the first point of contact people of the Old Testament, and the apostles, the first point of contact people in the New Testament, are saying. That's it. I'm not coming up with new revelation. In fact, I'm not allowed to claim to come up with new revelation extra to the Bible. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, it says, We, the church, we're God's household built on the foundation." of the apostles and the prophets. Built, the church is built upon the foundation of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says that you don't lay down foundations over and over again. Foundations are meant to be laid down once. We're just a house being built up upon it, you see. The Old Testament and New Testament is the foundation of the church and it's already been written 
And God's already stamped everyone he needed to stamp for that. He's not stamping anyone else. What we need to do today is not look for more miracles. What we need to do today is preach the message of salvation that these miracles in the past already confirmed through the Old and New Testament. Okay? All right. That's at least my proposal to you. You may have a different opinion. We can chat about it later. Okay? That's okay. But back to our story. What we see happen in this passage, see, is that there were seven Jewish priests who were not apostles, but yet they wanted to claim this power of miracles that only the apostles had for themselves, which, by the way, happens a lot in the book of Acts, doesn't it? Whenever an apostle performs a miracle, a non-apostle appears to want to counterfeit it. You remember? We talked about this already in Acts chapter 8 with Simon the magician. Remember that? Peter did a miracle, and then he wanted to copy him. And he was rebuked for it. And this time it's happening again. In Acts chapter 19, Paul performed a miracle. Verse 13 says, some itinerant Jewish exorcists tried to copy it. Now it's emphasized here that these Jewish exorcists were itinerant, which means rogue, outsiders. These people were not a part of the gospel movement. That's the emphasis with the word itinerant here. But see, they really sounded like they were. They even used the name of Jesus. Verse 13 said, I adjure you by the Jesus who Paul proclaims, they said. So here we see itinerant outsiders, not a part of the gospel movement, using the name of Jesus, sounding really like Christians, and they also looked like Christians. How many of them were there? Seven. Seven is a very biblical number, isn't it? God created the world in seven days. Pharaoh's dream of seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Seven symbolizes completion, perfection. So here's the picture. There are seven rogue outsiders that looked like Christians and sounded very Christian. But what happened? What happened when they tried to do the thing that only apostles were given ability to do? It blew up in their faces. And they ended up running out of the room naked, which signifies shame and embarrassment. Now, you all here may have different opinions about this, right? If miracles happen today or not, and that's totally fine. We can, we can disagree and still be brothers and sisters in Christ and be friends. And we can talk about it and dialogue. That's how we all grow by healthy dialogue and search what the Bible has to say about it. That's good. But wherever it is that you land on this issue of whether or not miracles happen today, I'm sure that we can here at least all agree that what these seven counterfeit miracle workers experienced in Acts chapter 19 has happened today, hasn't it? Someone somewhere makes a miraculous claim in the name of Jesus, saying, for example, this event will for sure happen on this date. By the power of the Spirit and in the name of Jesus, I prophesy that this will happen on this event. But it never did. It didn't happen. Shame. Nakedness. Embarrassment. In the name of Jesus, this man will rise from the dead. It's been said. Never happened. They waited and they waited and it didn't happen. 
Now let me just say this. Can I, a non-apostle, pray for a sick, sick friend of mine or a sick family member of mine to be healed in a miraculous way? Of course I can. Not only I can, but I should. And can God answer my prayer if he wants to? Of course he can. But if he does, that doesn't mean that I've performed an apostolic New Testament miracle. It just means that God answered my prayer. You see? Not that somehow he's bestowed upon me the same power that the apostles had and stamped me as a bearer of new revelation somehow, able to perform miracles at the drop of a hat. Which is what these seven rogue Jewish exorcists tried to do. They weren't praying. They weren't begging God for this to happen. They presumed upon themselves the same power that the apostles had and the words of the evil spirit. The evil spirit responds to them, confirm what we just talked about. What did the evil spirit say back to them in verse 15? He said this, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? Jesus and his apostles, yeah, they can do this kind of stuff. But who are you again? And they were shamed for it. Here's what John Calvin said about these false miracle workers in Acts chapter 19. The false show and colors of miracles is a horrible enchantment to bewitch and distract us from the gospel that we might be drowned in deeper darkness. There are many flashy shows of miracles out there today that look and sound very Christianly to where even the name of Jesus is called upon many times. But you gotta ask yourself, do these miracles point to Jesus or is Jesus there to point to the miracles? Who takes main stage? What takes main stage? Okay. Now here's the danger though. I try to preach this text faithfully and it may not be pleasing to a lot of people who may have different opinions, but I, I do wanna speak to the other side now for you who don't believe in these miracles and stuff like that, it's still happening today, God's still stamping people, you know. It's easy for us to demonize these people, to think that they're these evil people in partnership with the devil behind closed doors, you know, trying to distract people from the gospel. But as we see in this passage, that's not the case at all, which leads us to our second point. Don't treat all false miracle workers the same. This idea that these people out there is in partnership with the devil, right? And, and they're, they're, they're there to distract people from the gospel. It's not quite fair. It, it's not a fair judgment. Look at verse 16. Does this sound like a partnership to you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. The evil one beat them up stripped them naked, and sent them out to public shame. There's no equal share here. That's not a partnership. Look, I, I get it. I get how some people may feel a sense of satisfaction or justice even when people make false prophetic claims and it doesn't happen or when people attempt false miracles and they don't work and we go, ha-ha, you see, how embarrassing, and we laugh. 
especially if it's a public thing, right? Look at verse 17. The news about these seven false exorcists became known to all the residents of Ephesus. It became a public thing. And it's so easy. It's so easy to point and laugh at their nakedness and shame. But you be careful. Be very careful. The evil one's smart, you know. Your laughter toward their shame can very easily be used by him as a distraction from the gospel just as much as their false miracles are. Listen, nothing, nothing is more opposite to the gospel than those whose experience their shame covered by the blood of Christ on the cross, but yet they laugh at somebody else's shame. How could you? It's like a naked man who's been graciously given clothes by a rich king laughing at somebody else's nakedness. How could we? That, that turns unbelievers off towards Christianity equally, if not more so, than these false miracles. Don't push those who don't know the gospel away from the gospel in the way you respond to these things. Don't push these false miracle workers away from the gospel either. They need, it, they need to know it too. Look at verse 18. Many of those who are now believers confessing and divulging their practices. Apparently, after this event, right, after many of these false miracle workers came to Christ, they repented, they divulged their practices. Divulging just means explaining or showing or opening up their practices. See, back then, magicians believed that the power of a spell lies in how secret it is, in the fact that no one knows how it's done. So they would hide the documents containing their secret chants and the instructions of how to do them. But after seeing what happened to these seven false miracle workers, they repented and they gave up their false magic. Here's the documents, right? They laid it down. And not only that, verse 19 says, those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They came to Christ. They're, they need the gospel too. There's hope. Now, okay, not all of them repented, right? Verse 18 says many of them did. Verse 19 says a number of them did, which means that some and a number others didn't. Why? Well, because some of them were just way too deep into it, right? Maybe some money now is involved, and when your livelihood is affected, that, that's hard to get out of, right? Look at the end of verse 19. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, the author didn't specify whether it was 50,000 pieces of silver denarii or 50,000 pieces of silver talents. If it was silver denarii, that equals to about 5.5 million US dollars, which I think is 8 trillion rupiah, right? But if it was silver talents, then it would equal to 1.5 billion US dollars, which equals to I don't know what. 22-something. There's too many zeros for me to know what that number was. That's why I'm not a teacher. A lot of money. Miracle work business has always been a huge industry since forever ago. It's not new. But see, not all of them were that deep into it. A lot of them repented. By the way, I have actual friends 
real friends who are a part of this movement in some way or another. And some of them, like, I'm, I'm pretty close with, actually. And look, many of them, I tell you, many of them are believers, as far as I can tell. They're born again, again, true believers in Christ, and they know where I stand with this, so it's okay that I talk publicly about this. We laugh about it all the time, and we argue about it all the time. It's fine. But they're believers. There's different degrees to where people are at with this whole thing. Some are some believe this and they're born again and they don't practice the miracles. Some truly are believers and born again, but they practice it all the time. Some maybe aren't believers, but they're sincerely looking for Jesus. It just so happens that these were the kind of churches and, 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 and communities they were kind of exposed to as they were looking for Jesus. And I don't know, some may be in it for ulterior motives like money. I don't know. You don't know who's what, where, how, when. But what this passage is telling us is that Christ is offered to all and some people repented, and you won't be offering Christ to all or to anyone if all you do is relish in people's shame. Here's what you gotta remember, Christian, as you move to our last point. How do you resist the temptation to relish in other people's shame? We can never forget, don't forget, last point, that the root of our sin are all the same. What exactly caused these false magic workers in Acts chapter 19 to repent and burn their books and all that stuff? What caused Jesus' name to be magnified and God's word to increase? Look at verse 17. Here's the cause. After the seven rogue exorcists experienced public shame, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, here it is, and fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. By the way, you see the contrast there? Verse 13, the name of Jesus was profaned by these miracle workers, and verse 17, the name of Jesus was extolled, magnified. But how? How did the profaning turn into extolling? What was a secret ingredient in the middle that moved this to that? Verse 17 says, it was fear, and fear fall upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Fear caused by seeing what God would do to those who dare profane his name. It led people to Christ. But how in the world, the, how, how can fear lead people to the cross? Friends, it's the only thing that leads people to the cross. You know, for, for a while in my Christian walk, I was kind of very overly apologetic about God's wrath and about God's anger. And you know, when I would come upon passages like this that talks about God's wrath and justice and anger, I felt this need to kind of downplay it because I wanted to elevate God's love instead of his wrath. But then I realized that when I downplay God's wrath, I actually end up downplaying God's love instead as well. How? Look, if you don't see just how furious God is with your sin. If you don't see just how vengeful the holy God is with your sin and my sin, then you'll never truly get all that Jesus took for you on that cross. If God's only angry this much with your sin, then that means Jesus only took this much for you on the cross. If God is angry this much with your sin, 
then that means Jesus took this much punishment for you on the cross. But if God, see, is infinitely angry and infinitely furious with your sin and the way we've profaned his name, which we all do, then you know what Jesus took for you on that cross? You know how much he loves you? He took the infinite wrath of God that was meant for you upon himself. Christians who delete the wrath of God out of their theology can never know just how wide and deep and far and great the love of Christ is for them. The extent to which you reduce God's wrath is the extent to which you also reduce his love. The fear of God led people to the cross. And this same fear, Christians, should also protect us from falling into the juicy temptation of relishing in their shame. It should. Paul, later in his life, would actually write a letter to these people in Ephesians, in the letter of Ephesus, uh, yeah, in Ephesians, and, and he said this, Ephesians chapter two, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of your own works. So don't boast, so that no one may boast. Don't boast, don't get cocky. The glorious robe of honor which you currently have on, the glorious robe of honor which is currently covering you from your spiritual nakedness, you didn't buy that. You didn't work for that. It's not your own doing. It's not a result of works. The only reason why you have it is because Christ willingly endured shame and nakedness for you on that cross, for me on that cross. So don't laugh at other people's nakedness. Don't. Love them. Engage with them. Speak truth to them, of course, but in such a way to where if the evil one ever beats them up, and if the evil one ever brings them to a point of shame and nakedness in their life, you can be there to point them to the one who gave you your robe. And you'll never earn the right to do that if all you do is laugh. Don't. Love them. Remember, the root of our sin are all the same. And sometimes, that's how the gospel spreads. When Christians put their arms around those who's been shamed, yes, even those who profane the name of Christ. Speak truth, friends, in love. Let's pray. Father, what a convicting passage. I can't count the many times in which I have relished in the juicy temptation and find humor in other people's shame. And even by that act, I'm also profaning your name, lifting up your name, representing your name in a way that it's not meant to be. We confess, Father, our sin, and we bring to you our pride and our arrogance of forgetting 
that the robe we have on has somehow given to us because we've earned it. We have far from earned it. Remind us, Father, that you used aprons and handkerchiefs, items of common use to do great mighty works through. Reminding us, symbolizing, Father, that whoever it is you choose to spread the gospel through, whoever it is you choose to reveal the saving faith and revelation of your word and, and, and understanding of your cross, we're not special in ourselves. We're merely common. But yet you, the great and special and holy one, have decided to redeem us, to wash us clean, and make us of special use. Humble us, Father, as we continue in this last song and as we worship you, remind us again of how it is Christians are meant to live and lift up your name. In Jesus' name we pray.